Welcome, dear listener, to Astonishing Tales of the Highly Improbable. I'm your host, Lloyd Allen, and this is the New Albion Orchestra. to another joy-filled episode of the New Albion Radio Hour's Astonishing Tales of the Highly Unlikely. This week's escape into spiritual and sexual fulfillment is brought to you by Dorothy's Game Emporium. Located on Cordillo Street, it's got all your gaming needs taken care of. Board games, tabletop RPGs, mind games, oh I love mind games, and the most extensive collection of chess sets in New Albion, including novelty and handcrafted. Well, yes, I do enjoy chess. You know, I was a child prodigy back when I was a little wee Lloyd. Oh, yes. Learned it from my father. Well, why would I talk about my father? It was a very long time... Well, I prefer not to talk about my mother. Because no one wants to hear some boring windbag drone on about their childhood. No, no, no. I hardly think... Well... My father was a professor, but you really want to know? I don't understand. I, I mostly just abuse you, despite the fact that you're one of the only people who have been kind to me in this entire festering cesspool of a... Yes, you're right. Kinder and gentler. Kinder and gentler. All right, then. What do you want to know? Well... My father was a university professor in the psychological sciences. He wasn't exactly the warmest of human beings, and he had no concept of how to relate to children. One of his favorite hobbies was chess, but he even had books on the subject. My mother was always pestering him to play games with me, or do something with me, anything. He didn't really enjoy the company of children, and... I was well aware he looked down upon me, and I was mostly just an annoyance. When I was five, he taught me how to play chess. It was the only thing we did together, although he didn't enjoy it. He did it out of duty, or maybe because my mother just pestered him behind my back. I don't know what my mother did. My last memory of hers when I was six, but it's very vivid. I remember her hugging me. She was crying. She was telling me she had to go away for a bit and promised she'd be back for me one day. Of course I cried too. I begged her not to go or to take her with me. Then she left. My father wasn't home. I just stood there in the entrance hall and cried out for my mommy, probably for a good hour. Eventually, my father came home and read her note. I was too young to really appreciate what was happening, but I can only now imagine his reaction. So so now he was left to raise a child he didn't particularly want. I would ask when Mommy was coming back every day for an entire year, but after a year, I gave up. I was left to my own devices, but 
the one thing we continued to do together was occasionally play chess. It was the only connection I had with him, even though I was aware that our sessions were the only way I had to earn his love, or, in lieu of that, anything resembling respect. He was the kind who believed it was immoral and harmful to ever let a child win. So, when I tell you that at seven I finally beat him, I assure you, I worked for that. He was a little shocked, but he assumed that he was just tired. Except that I beat him again. And again. I would even read those incredibly dull books of his. I was aware I had very little value and would have to work obsessively to acquire some small little shred of worth. When I first started winning, I didn't win every game. But that quickly changed. By the time I was eight years old, he could never beat me again. He was actually proud of me. I had done it. I had earned some worth. He enrolled me in an academy with a renowned chess club that was a primer for the professional circuit. At first, I quite liked it. I felt very much at home with other awkward game nerds. It was heaven, and I was out of the house. I lived there, and... After my first year, I stopped going home for holidays. I don't even know if my father ever called to ask where I was or if I was ever coming home. Well, the problem was I grew tired of chess. I could beat everyone else. I could win the tournaments. But after winning a few, I became the center of uh, too much attention. Attention like that was very unsettling. I wasn't comfortable with it. And I was starting to question how much of my life I really wanted to spend playing one simple game. I was getting together with the other chess nerds and playing other games. And I was much more interested in mastering those. Eventually, I simply stopped winning competitions. I would use my moves to make patterns that spelled out, for instance, the letters F and U, or elaborate middle fingers when you went back and studied the game moves and, you know, drew them out. Eventually, much to their chagrin, they stopped sending me. They had to still keep me in. I, I was the best player they'd ever had. But my role was now to help and teach the other kids. And eventually I drifted off from even that. Yeah, later on, when I fell in love. No, my, my first boyfriend was not a chess nerd. No, they were too much like my father. I didn't have enough self-awareness back then, but now I understand that I was attracted to Matt because he was very much like my mother. A bit of a queen, had a little flair, and literally into drama. Matthew was the star of the theater department. I have no idea what he saw in me, but being with him was, uh, it was subconsciously similar to being with my mother. And I so very much missed her and the type of energy she, she had once brought to my life. So I fell for Matt. Oh my, I fell hard. And he got me into theater, which became a passion that would serve me well later in life. As awkward as I was, I was accepted into the theater circle and I found a valuable role doing jobs that no sane person wants to do and doing it expertly. Which job? Guess which job. 
Yes, of course. I was the finest stage manager you could ever possibly imagine. Before me, all the productions, both school-oriented and with student-led drama groups, uh, they teetered endlessly on the brink of chaos and ruin. Not so after I took the mantle. Everything ran shipshape. I held chaos and madness together and whipped them into perfect order. I also had a mind for business that I assure you that that pack of drama queens and divas couldn't fathom. Ah, I love those days. I, I think it was the first time since my mother had left me that I knew happiness. Real happiness. That was a shame. A shame those days couldn't last. So, Dorothy's Game Emporium. Because games aren't merely distractions, they mirror life in human psychology more than one might be aware. They allow people to metaphorically crush their enemies, although I assure you, once you graduate to the big boy league, doing so in real life with real stakes is far more satisfying. Anyway, games are wonderful. You should shop there. And without further ado, here is this week's episode of Jill and the Ghost, Part 2, Darla. Even though the Renaissance Fair that filled the wide northern field each summer was run and staffed by the odd, the mad, and those existing on the outskirts of society, it was beloved by all the surrounding towns. Darla Channing, for one, had wonderful memories of going to the fair each year as a girl and well through her teenage years, and was enormously excited to take her own daughter there for her first time. Darla's daughter was six, and she would have taken her before now, but the troubles of the past few years hadn't made that possible. No matter, though. That was all behind her, and now she and her little girl were off to the Renaissance Fair. The fair had filled the northern field every summer for decades now. It was a colorful festival of booths, costumed entertainers, musical and theatrical acts, art and handicrafts for sale, and festival food. All who worked there wore strange and delightful costumes. Some meant to be from what she assumed was the Elizabethan era, and some which just seemed outright wacky and bizarre. The whole festival had that feel to it, something strange and delightful that was trying to stay within some kind of reasonable bounds, but often failed in the most amusing manner. She had loved it as a girl, but when she grew to teenage years, she started staying into the evening and having a different kind of fun. She and her friends would cunningly buy plastic cups of beer from one of the more confused vendors, who wouldn't have qualms selling it to them. They'd laugh and howl as the festival went on well into the night. It was one rather muggy July night, in fact, when she met Dorian. He was so gorgeous then and his wildness was irresistibly attractive to her. He gave her the eye several times as she and her friends would pass he and his, and it would cause her to giggle with her girlfriends, and that way teenagers do, that she missed now sometimes. They made out that night behind the blacksmith's shop. They would return to the fair several nights a week and continue to hook up, and by the end of the summer were very much together. 
The fair had all sorts of fun rumors swirling around it. The most popular was that in the old days, the staff and performers had once all been inmates at an old insane asylum that used to be in that very field. They had broken free, burnt the place down, and afterwards formed the fair. This troop, if you will, of all the odd and mad ones. Ever since, they said, the crazy and weird would come from the surrounding towns to be a part of the fair and live there instead of going to the loony bin. Teenagers would smoke their first cigarettes or other illicit things and tell stories of how all the strange ones would know they belonged at the fair because they'd see something that told them. Their grandparents had said, if you saw a little ghost boy, you knew you'd end up living with the troop. Others said it was a fairy song that played in the night that if you heard it, it meant you were a nut and had to live with the Ren Fairs. Some kids said the devil himself appeared to you, or a witch, or that if you smoked too much weed, you'd go nuts, or there was a fairy queen or a talking goat. The story changed constantly. Darla had heard it was a ghost boy from her grandmother, and so had Kathy Cornwall and some other girls she knew, so she always liked that version. Dorian had been so much fun. The two of them had a blast. He had a taste for drink even back then, and by university she had too. They had attended uni together, although they were on again, off again during those years. By the end, though, they were together again, this time for good. They were both party animals, and they had some wild times. She didn't regret them. The trouble was, after uni, it came time to fend for themselves. She was a bit immature back then, she'd be the first to admit, and it was easy for a few years to work retail jobs and basically live at the pub in the hours around it. But this lost its luster. For her, that is. She could honestly say she just grew out of it. Dorian didn't, and as time went on, this started to be a problem. The tales of husbands on the bottle all go the same way. Laura Barkfield had the same problem, and honestly, thank God a little bit, because Darla had someone to commiserate with. When Darla got pregnant, something she was honestly delighted about, it had been Laura who told her frankly that this was his big chance, and if he couldn't shape up for a baby, he wasn't going to shape up for anything and had to go. Dorian did shape up. He really did. He said he didn't need to go to meetings or anything. He could just do it on his own. And he did. For about two years. Well, two years, she thought. It was hard to be sure because by the time she realized he was drinking again, back when their little girl was two and a half, he had been doing it secretly for a while, and it had taken time to build up to the point where he was getting sloppy enough to let it show. In hindsight... She shouldn't have let him white-knuckle it. She should have insisted he go to meetings. Maybe that would have worked for him. It worked for Martin Barkfield. But Dorian had no such luck. Their marriage dragged out a few more years, but those were ugly, ugly years. As many times as Dorian said he was off the bottle, Darla knew now he never was again. He just lied and hid it and tried to rein it in, 
but ultimately he couldn't. Finally, one day, he was just gone. She heard that maybe he was over in Westfield for a bit, but she didn't care. She was just relieved to have him out of the house. Now she could focus on building a new life. Everything would be okay. Being a single mom wasn't so bad. If she had managed to get through the past few years all while having a toddler, she could handle having a kid who was more self-sufficient with ease. She was happy and hopeful again. And so, with summer upon them, she was taking little Jill to the Ren Fair for her first time. Jill was a precocious child, delightful, bright, engaged. It was just whatever other children loved, Jill always preferred something different. Other children loved cute toddler songs. Jill showed no interest in them, but on walks would want to stand and listen to the town drunks sing slurred, half-remembered old ballads. She once heard a sitar and scream when Darla tried to get her to leave. The little girl went ecstatic over bells, church hymns, weird drones, any type of chanting, any weird foreign music that played on the telly. These would captivate little Jill. Jill would play games with other children, but eventually wind up trying to teach them games she made up, with rules even Darla couldn't fathom. The girl loved play-acting, at least something Darla could understand. She loved her little girl. It was just that she was a handful. Still, now is a day to forget the drudgeries of the daily routine and enjoy a day at the Ren Fair with her daughter. No one knew exactly where the troop went to in the off-season. Folks said they set up somewhere down south in a few places where the weather was warmer. They moved around a bit before returning. The rumors of them all being a bit nutty couldn't be entirely true. There was much too much organization happening. Some of them had to certainly be on top of their business. Anyway, all that stuff was likely kid stories. Local lore, if you will. The fair was as bright and bustling as she remembered it, full of smells, colors, and noises. The drencher wench was just over to the right, and a stage for the Commedia dell'arte, which she used to just love, was over on the left past the first row of booths. She could hear swords clanging from the mock battle ring. Later, she wanted to watch the live human chess match, which was good fun and always devolved into delightful mayhem. She bought Jill and herself a sausage and made their way over to the stage to see what time the comedy show started. They walked past the booths, inspecting the various odds and ends. Jill tugged at her and pointed over to something. She said loudly, Mommy, look! Who is that boy? She was pointing to thin air. The booths surrounding her all went silent. The crew working them all looked at one another, then at Jill. Jill began talking to the air in front of her, as if a little boy was standing right there. Darla fell to her knees and clutched her and cried out, No! No, you can't have her! No, you can't turn her into one of you! Several of the crew had come out of their booths and were standing around her. A kind-looking, slightly round, middle-aged man dressed in bright patchwork clothes said softly, Ma'am, no one turns anybody into anything. 
we were all already as we are when we saw him. He placed a hand gently on her shoulder as Darla clutched her daughter and cried. So there you go, this week's story. And of course, we end once again with a lovely little ditty performed by one of the members of our new Albion Orchestra. So take it away, musician. I hear a voice from the back of the room. I hear a voice cry out, you want something good. Well, come on a little closer, let me see your face. Yeah, come on a little closer by the front of the stage. I said, come on a little closer, I got something to say. Yeah, come on a little closer, let me see your face. You see, I met a devil named Buena Buena. Since I met the devil, I ain't been the same. Oh, no. And I feel all right now, I have to tell you. I think it's time for me to finally introduce you to the brain of brain of brain of brain of good, good, good. It's coming to me Yeah, it's coming to me Now I think I know What it is you need Well, I know some people Want to make a change Well, I know how to make him go away See I met a devil named Buena Buena Since I met the devil I ain't been the same Oh no I feel so good now I have to tell y'all I think it's time for me to finally introduce you To the Buena 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 Good Good Good